England was in turmoil, tearing itself apart in a bloody civil war. The rich and powerful had split the land into two warring camps. The House of Lancaster, whose banner was the Red Rose, and the House of York, who followed the White Rose. And so it was named the War of the Roses. Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of Ear Read This, a podcast providing critical introductions to our favourite works of literature. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. First serialised in 1883, it was later published as a novel in 1888. Capitalising on the success of Treasure Island, The Black Arrow is another adventure story marketed for younger readers. Set during the Wars of the Roses, we follow the fortunes of young Richard Shelton as he fights first for the House of Lancaster, then the House of York. In our recent episodes on Shakespeare's history plays, we have seen this civil war largely from the perspective of its key actors. The royals and nobles feuding over who was the true heir of Edward III. Today, we'll see how Stevenson imagined that same conflict from a lower class perspective. Outlaws, spies and veterans of the Wars of France surround Dick Shelton on his journey to becoming a knight. It is set in and around Suffolk, where Stevenson had spent some time in 1873, lodging in a moated rectory belonging to his cousin, Maud Balfour. Stevenson was influenced not only by Shakespeare, but novels like Ivanhoe and the Tales of Robin Hood. He'd also studied the medieval period some years before, reading works like The Trial of Joan of Arc and The Paston Letters, the collected correspondence of a Norfolk family in the 15th and 16th century. To discuss The Black Arrow, I am delighted to be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Hodges. Since first writing about Stevenson in an article to commemorate the centenary of his death in 1994, Jeremy has produced a book on the author's time in Paris and a biography of Stevenson called Lamplit Vicious Fairyland, which is free to read online and linked in the episode description box below. Jeremy's most recent book, Mrs. Jekyll and Cousin Hyde, looks at the strange case of Stevenson's cousin, Catherine de Matos, which we'll be discussing more on our next episode later in the week. For now, The Black Arrow, a novel which has nothing like the profile of Jekyll and Hyde, and yet is among Stevenson's most reprinted works. Today we'll talk about The Black Arrow's composition and commercial history, its take on The Wars of the Roses, and whether it deserves better recognition within the author's canon. Stevenson made his own opinion clear when he wrote to William Archer in 1894. I find few greater pleasures than reading my own works, but I never, oh, I never read The Black Arrow. I mean, he he didn't think much of it, did he, Robert Louis Stevenson? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a long history. Um, it was basically, it was a potboiler. Uh, Treasure Island had been written for Young Folks magazine, whose editor was a chap called Henderson who uh, had actually been, he'd, he'd gone up to Braemar to see Stevenson at the time when Stevenson was locked up in a wet cottage in Braemar, um, very bored, and was writing this story to amuse his stepson, Lloyd Osborne. Mm. And the, the chap Henderson actually went off with uh, a, a fistful of proofs of Treasure Island and said, you know, I'd like to run these serialised these in Young Folks magazine. Can you keep writing? And, of course, Stevenson then had to sort of finish the book, which was very difficult when it broke down halfway through. And because of his health, he ended up in Switzerland. 
and he then sort of wrote the second half of Treasure Island in, in Switzerland. Anyhow, that, that's sort of, you know, the, the long story. But the short story is that it, it went okay in Young Folks, um, although not as huge a success as some other serializations. But it then got, came out as a book, and it was far more, it was a huge smash hit with adults rather than kids. Mm. And notoriously, uh, the Prime Minister, William Gladstone, who uh, Stevenson hated because the Stevensons were Tories and Gladstone was a liberal. He, well, he'd been, he'd been a Tory who defected to the liberals, which is even worse. So they, they hated Mr. Gladstone. And Stevenson was most pissed off to discover that Gladstone <laughs> had been so captivated by Treasure Island that he'd stayed up all night to read it at a sitting. Must have stung. And to, 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 to which Stevenson, rather than being pleased that the Prime Minister had read his book at one shot, said Mr. Gladstone would have been done better to attend to the affairs of England because this was at the time of uh, General Gordon's death at Khartoum and, you know, sort of huge national disgrace mm. on the international stage. So uh, Henderson thought, well, right, we'll have another one of these because it's, it's obviously successful. Stevenson at this stage has always needed the money. He got financial help from his parents all his life, but he was desperately trying to support himself by writing. So he came up with this, this other one. But from the very start, when he started writing it, he described it to his friends in letters as tushery. <laughs> this, this was his sort of polite phrase for crap. You know, it was, you know, he, he was right. He was he knew he was writing crap. Um, but being a very good writer, even when he was writing crap, it was it was it was good stuff. And uh, later, when it got turned into a, a book, and he he revised it before it came out as a book, mm. and he then said, actually, it's it's not half as bad as I thought it was. So um, there we go. We've also got the, the, the dedication to his wife. His, his wife, Fanny Osborne, the American lady, who he, uh, he, she was married at the time. He ran away to the States to meet up with her, to persuade her to leave her husband, divorce him. They got married in the States and then came back. Much to the chagrin of some of his literary friends, but he always got his wife to read whatever he wrote first and mm -hmm. uh, to give her comments on it. He used to call her the critic on the hearth. <laughs> Uh, a, pun, a pun on Dickens' cricket on the hearth, um, because they would sit by the fireside, she would read his stuff and basically tear it to pieces and say, I didn't like this, I didn't like that, or whatever. And they'd have a good old argument about it. So he bounced all his stuff off her. Mm. He writes in, in his facetious dedication to Fanny of the Black Arrow. It's the one book that he dedicated to her. He said, I've watched with interest, with pain, and at length with amusement, your unavailing attempts to peruse the Black Arrow. And I think I should lack humour indeed if I let the occasion slip and did not place your name in the flyleaf of the only book of mine that you have never read and never will read. <laughs> she just found it unreadable. It wasn't her cup of tea at all. No. Um, but he then says uh, later on, in the eyes of readers who thought less than nothing of Treasure Island, and this is the young folks, because... Treasure Island was a huge success as a kid's story in a serialization. It was mm. when it came out as a book that it was a smash. In the eyes of readers who thought less than nothing of Treasure Island, the Black Arrow was supposed to mark a clear advance. It was mm. better stuff uh, for young readers. And those who read volumes and those who read story papers belong to different worlds. And I think that's the, the key to it. And it was written, when you look at it, it's like, it's like a long comic strip that doesn't have the illustrations. Stevenson provides the illustrations with his descriptions. He's, he's a great describer. It's very, very visual. And that's what impressed me about it. 
that just the whole, the way he was able to create this whole sort of medieval scene. Yeah. All the places in forests and, and, you know, the landscape of England, with which he wasn't particular for, particularly familiar. Mm. And he basically faked it, and he had various sources. When he was a kid, as you may know, he used to go and stay uh, quite often at his grandfather's house in Collington, at the manse in Collington. His, mm. his grandfather, the Reverend Lewis Balfour, was the minister there. And his aunt Jane, his mother's sister, was acting as housekeeper. And she would look after all these various expat kids who would stay there um, because their parents were working for the British Empire away in India or, or wherever. And Lewis would go there. Um, everybody called him Lewis, not Robert. Mm. Uh, Lewis would go there and uh, stay for you know a few weeks sometimes in the summer. In the evening, when things did eventually get dark, so it can't have been high summer, the lamps would be lit, but all behind the sofa, it was still dark. And he would crawl around having adventures there and, you know, pretending he was doing all kinds of things. But he found a bookshelf and on it, among the books on it, were uh, the plays of Joanna Bailey, who was a Scottish poet and author in the late 18th century. And she wrote um, sort of romance. But the thing was, these were incredibly wicked because Stevenson was brought up, his, his nurse, Alison Cunningham, was a free Presbyterian. Mm. And she believed that the theatre and plays and anything like that were sinful. And this got drummed into poor Lewis when he was young. He, he soon got rid of it when he was older. So he, he would sit there behind the sofa, probably getting just about enough light coming over. And he would sit and read Joanna Bailey um, as if it was sort of pornography when all it was. was uh, you know, the, the, these plays with sort of rural English settings of, you know, castles and uh, convents and, you know, the, the general sort of romantic stuff that... Mm. Um, and he got a lot of his imagery from that, you know, the, the, the scenery. Look at the Black, Ar Black Arrow. It's almost like theatrical scenery. Mm. You know, the background, the setting that he puts, his, he puts the action into. And it partly came from that. The other thing it came from is Skelt's juvenile drama. Books, uh, it was for toy theatres. And you would get these books of plays. And it was all the characters in the play and the scenery as well. Um, which you could cut out and you could put on the end of sticks and put them in your toy theatre. Oh, and you wow. Could, you, you could have a little play. And there was a shop in Leith Walk, um, Wilson's, Stationers. Mm. The Stevensons would go for long walks out to Leith to see the ships quite regularly. And they would frequently pass this shop. And Lewis would spend his pocket money there on these books of plays he would collect them and you could get Penny Plain and Tuppence Coloured. He wrote an essay all about it, which is a great essay if you want to sort of read about, you know, the imagination of kids and what would happen. Uh, and the shopkeeper going nuts because he would be pawing over all these different books and the, and the shopkeeper would say, I do not believe, child, that you are an intending purchaser at all. <laughs> <laughs> he, he and his cousin Bob, Bob Stevenson, um, mm. who became an artist, he was very bohemian character. He was the brother of Catherine Stevenson, who mm. we'll talk about when we're talking about Jekyll and Hyde. But uh, Lewis and Bob used to take this stuff back to Harriet Row. Bob would come and stay at, at Harriet Row, the Stevenson's main house in, in Edinburgh. And they would spend ages colouring in all the characters and the scenes. They, did, they didn't cut them out because they thought that would rather spoil it. And I don't think they ever put them on the end of sticks and had the plays. They were just fascinated by all these cut-out characters and all the amazing scenery, and they would colour it in. 
And the black arrow is basically sort of the, the literary version in words mm. of what Lewis and Bob were doing when they were creating, creating all these scenes. And of course, a lot of the scenes were English. And this would explain how Stevenson wrote, I mean, the, the Black Arrow is a book of English history, The Wars of the Roses, yeah, and English settings all the way through. And Stevenson, apart from a couple of walks in the English countryside that he did when he was writing travel books, really his main experience of, of, of England was London and then Bournemouth when he lived there. So all the English countryside and the scenery, it's not observed from life. It's recreated from all these picture scenes that he and cousin Bob used to paint in and all the scenery of the plays of Joanna Bailey. And this is why you get, it has this sort of comic book feel to it. That's fascinating. I was going to ask you because I, I just not knowing Joanna Bailey, I, I assumed there was, you know, Shakespeare was his obvious source because it's between the Kings and his, his well, Richard uh, is yes. a bit like uh, he, he was particularly proud. That he only comes in at the end of the book. Mm. He was very proud of uh, Richard Crookback, who was then Duke of Gloucester, later Richard III. Mm. Stevenson was particularly proud of the way he'd sort of brought him to life. You know, he thought this was, you know, rivaling Shakespeare or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stevenson takes a Shakespearean view of history in that his Richard is also crookbacked and ruthless. In line with the portrait of the future king presented by historians loyal to the Tudors, like Sir Thomas More. Stevenson also follows Shakespeare's lead in making his Richard active rather earlier than the historical Richard was, and refers to him as Gloucester before he was made a duke. We also get to hear Richard addressed by one of his lesser-known titles, Lord of Wensleydale. The book begins in May of 1460 and is set over the following eight months. We hear reference to the Battle of Wakefield, which took place that December, where Richard Plantagenet was defeated and killed, putting the Lancastrians back on the ascendant. Apart from that, the novel rarely mentions exact dates or major events. Stevenson was light on historical detail, presumably as a result of writing at speed. He completed the novel within just a few months. Famous historical characters appear in fleeting cameos. We hear the Lancastrians celebrating the news that their King Harry has come again into his right mind. Elsewhere are references to Queen Margaret's party on the move and a suspicion that Ellis Duckworth, leader of the Black Arrow Fellowship, may be an agent of the kingmaker, Warwick. The famous Woodville family are represented here by the fictional Walsinghams and the first action of the Wars of the Roses, the Battle of St Albans, is reimagined as the Battle of Shoreby. Shifting focus away from the prominent figures and key events helps approximate the remoteness to the conflict felt by our characters. Dick Shelton understands little about the ancient bickerings of the houses of York and Lancaster and swaps the red rose for the white for personal reasons. The discovery that his Lancastrian guardian, Sir Daniel Brackley, murdered his biological father. When asked what his allegiance is, Shelton remains hesitant and unsure. I can scarce clearly answer, he says. But so much I think is certain. Since I serve with Ellis Duckworth, I serve the House of York. Well, if that be so, I declare for York. But Shelton's real loyalty is to his murdered father, spending the early part of the book in a Hamlet-like dilemma before swearing revenge on Sir Daniel, the man who replaced his parent. Stevenson knew that medieval knights like Sir Daniel could exploit the ward system for profit. Until children came of age at 21, their wardship could be traded or sold. According to John Sutherland, read carefully, The Black Arrow opens tantalising windows into the psychology of an author, the whole of whose fiction returns obsessively to his own juvenile trauma as an only child, at odds with a stern father. 
did he consider himself a, a, a children's author at the time, or would he was he like holding back a bit of hope in a in a Treasure Island sort of way that oh I'll sell it to kids, but there's a bit more to it. In some ways, he was a child at heart, childlike, mm. not childish, because he had complete recall of what it was like to see the world through the eyes of a child. You get this in Child's Garden of Verses. Yeah. The reason that they're so popular is because they see life the way a child sees life or whatever. And he never lost that. So that childlike aspect of him, in, in some ways, people sort of thought he was a bit like a child. He was one of life's innocence at times. But I'm not sure he saw himself as a children's author. His wife did. She was very conscious of protecting his reputation. Because if he was going to write books like Treasure Island, Black Arrow, Kidnapped, which uh, middle-class ladies, maiden aunts and all the rest would buy in shed loads for their favourite nephews and nieces and all the rest. You know, there's big market, you could make lots of money from it. And he did. If there was any sort of hint of scandal hung over him, then um, mm. he would, you know, he, he could wreck his reputation. There'd be no more children's writing. So th that was one of the reasons that she was desperate for him not to write anything salacious or, you know, a bit dodgy. Which we can come on to with Jekyll and Hyde, but yeah, we don't, I was gonna say. don't want to get things too 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 mixed up. He was quite frustrated that he couldn't write naughty stuff. He also, from what I read, he also quite enjoyed the the success with young folks when it took off. He 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 enjoyed the money, and it. <laughs> he was very ambivalent about tushery. He would disparage it and complain, you know, that he was having to grind out this rubbish because he he was. Um, you know, not always in good health and he had to keep writing anyway. But on the other hand, he quite enjoyed it. It was like playing. It was like being a kid again. So it was, it was sort of a love-hate relationship with it. And I think the love comes through. I mean, the, 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 the Black Arrow, however rude you might be about it, as a work of literature, it's, it's living. It's, it's quite exciting. You can see why kids would enjoy it. Stevenson's frequent dismissals of the work as tushery and the fact that he had it printed under his pseudonym, Captain George North, give us the impression he wasn't particularly proud of the Black Arrow. However, elsewhere, he seems to regard it rather more warmly. I just noticed in, in one of his letters, this is when he'd, he, he was, he'd only just got started on doing the Black Arrow, but he was saying, um, this is to his friend W.E. Henley, who basically took over more as his literary editor once he was writing fiction, mm. um, rather than Sidney Colvin, who was his first sort of mentor, I suppose. But he's writing to Henley, and he then says, I, I must go off and tush, which means write <laughs> some more of the Black Arrow. But before he goes, he writes this little poem that he just tosses off. He calls it A Little Jape of Tushery by A. Tusher. The pleasant river gushes among the meadows green. At home, the author tushes. From him it flows unseen. The birds among the bushes may wanton on the spray, but vain for him who touches the brightness of the day. The frog among the rushes sings singing in the blue. By a lakin, but these touches are wearisome to do. The task entirely crushes the spirit of the hard. God pity him who touches, his task is very hard. The filthy gutter gushes. The clouds are full of rain, but doomed to lie, who tushes, to tush and tush again. At morn, with his hair brushes, still tush, he says, and weeps. At night again, he tushes and tushes till he sleeps. And when at length he pushes beyond the river dark, next to the man who tushes, 
Tush shall be God's remark. And it was, in the, you know, that, that was his lament about having to grind this stuff out. For someone who was short on time, he, he, he clearly uh, found enough to um, write, <laughs> write a good verse on the side. He was, it's unbelievable. We, we have nearly 3,000 of his letters that survive. And when you multiply that by the number that got stuck in the bin, and I know a lot of his friends realised that the letters he was sending them were little works of literary genius anyway. Mm. So they, they, they hoarded them. But there would have been other people who just stuck them in the bucket. So God knows how many letters he wrote. And they're not always little short notes. I mean, they're sometimes, you know, the length of a chapter. Yeah, he churned it out. He was, he was frail physically, but mentally he was, you know, adrenaline king. Yeah. Following a bout of illness, Stevenson was recuperating in France when he wrote the entirety of The Black Arrow. It was released in Young Folks magazine in 17 weekly instalments, throughout which Stevenson was just managing to keep a day or two ahead of schedule. He started the project on the 26th of May, 1886, and the first issue was released on the 30th of June. Appropriately, The Black Arrow was written at a whistling speed, but this did result in some oversights. At the beginning of the novel, the Fellowship of the Black Arrow send a doggerel warning to their enemies. I had four black arrows under my belt, four for the griefs that I have felt, four for the number of ill men that have oppressed me now and then. It goes on to name the four men, including Sir Daniel, for his part in the murder of Richard's father. The Fellowship signed the letter, John Amend All, which Stevenson had taken from Robin Amend All, leader of a genuine group of northern rebels during the Wars of the Roses. Later, Stevenson realised he had not remembered to amend quite all. Another of the four targets named in the letter was Oliver Oates, who unexplainably escapes being shot with a black arrow as promised. Pressed for a reason why he let this villain off the hook, the author replied, I had, I blush to say it, clean forgot him. Uh, unfortunately, this is, uh, this is a mistake in my book as well. <laughs> because, well, I, 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 went to say, I went to check in Stevenson's letters. The story was the Black Arrow came out originally as a serialised um, story for young folks magazine, for young people, sort of 10-year-old upwards, something like that. And um, he was getting towards the end of the book. And it was actually a proofreader at the magazine who sort of queried it and said, by the way, one of your characters, you haven't killed them off yet. And uh, you're getting to the end of the book and we don't know what's, you know, we're left with, you know, both feet firmly in midair. And uh, I committed the cardinal sin of just writing off the top of my head. And I said it was Sir Daniel Brackley mm. who gets killed off by the Black Arrow at towards the end of the book. And it actually wasn't. It was Sir Oliver Oates, who is uh, the, the villainous uh, parson. In, he, he's another baddie in the book. And he sort of disappears about five chapters before the end, mm. um, sort of goes out of the room or whatever. And we know that he's on the Black Arrows hit list, but he's never heard of again, or he, he was never heard of again in the, uh, in, in the serialization. And mm. this proofreader spotted it and queried it. And Stevenson wrote him back a groveling apology of a letter saying how embarrassed he was and how he'd fixed it. And he'd sent him the stuff. It takes a lot of trawling through to find out exactly what happens to Sir Oliver. But after Sir Daniel has been bumped off, Dick Shelton then is having a conversation with Ellis Duckworth, who is the Black Arrow, alias uh, John Amendall or whatever. Duckworth is, is expressing a certain amount of remorse for having bumped all these off. And Dick says, well, actually, would you mind not bumping off Sir Oliver? 
And uh, Ellis Duckworth says, no, no, I'm sorry, or worse to that effect. So we're actually left with the fact that, you know, the, the, the black arrow is still around the corner for Sir Oliver, but it hasn't actually happened yet. Hasn't landed. Yes, which is, which, is, which is really quite clever because you keep wondering, you know, when is Sir Oliver going to get bumped off? But it's yeah. obviously after the end of the book. So uh, I was going to say, I mean, it's maybe a bit of an anachronism to say, but it does read in a weirdly kind of cinematic way in that there's characters talking and suddenly an arrow will sort of land in their throat or something. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's actually a real page turner, which is why the kids mm. loved it. I mean, adults would be rude about it, but kids thought it was great. The Black Arrow bears the marks of serialisation. Almost every weekly two-chapter segment ends on a cliffhanger. Getting Stevenson to write a historical adventure story had been the idea of James Henderson, editor of Young Folks, who had already serialised Treasure Island. And although The Black Arrow proved more of a hit with Young Folks readers, Stevenson declined the lucrative offer to write a follow-up for the magazine. It wasn't until five years later, when Stevenson and his wife were living in America, that he was approached by the publisher Samuel McClure. As John Sutherland says, by that time Stevenson was a hot literary property, particularly in the United States. McClure offered Stevenson $10,000 a year for an American re-serialisation of The Black Arrow. The Young Folks run had been printed under the title A Tale of Tunstall Forest whereas this new 1888 Philadelphia Press version was serialised as The Outlaws of Tunstall Forest. McClure also arranged for the publication of Stevenson's work as a novel, which appeared under the title The Black Arrow, A Tale of the Two Roses. While critics like Melvin Orth have written it off as just another of the stereotyped stories of the day, others have been struck by how daring Stevenson was within the confines of popular serial literature. J.C. Furness, for example, says that the conventions of the boy's story were based on rights and wrongs. To enlist the hero with the white rose should have made the red a villainous cause by definition. But Stevenson dryly lighted up the futilities of medieval dynastic wars, and the triumph of right, if it can be considered to occur, is chillingly incidental. What might surprise modern readers aware of the original intended audience is the violence of the book. The novel opens with Nicholas Appleyard, veteran of Agincourt and first victim of the Black Arrow, shot clean through the shoulder blades. Victorians were fine about death. Violence was fine. They were terrified of sex. Mm. Absolutely terrified. And children's writing at the time would often even have disclaimers at the start of it saying, there, you know, there's nothing here to concern the, uh, you know, the worried parents. That, they, that, that her children were like that their children were likely to be corrupted by reading this stuff, and of course, quite often it was it was completely wrong. Um, Stevenson uh, read he found a whole pile of back copies of a magazine that ran a big long serial called The Night of the Road, which is all about Dick Turpin, mm. and it was written by an alcoholic called Edward Viles, who basically wrote for drink, and this his output was phenomenal. Um, the night of the road, I think, went on for about two years and God knows how many thousand miles on, on the road, all about Dick Turpin. But it would have sort of scenes in it. I mean, at one point, Dickie's sort of climbing over the roof of some houses and he, he steps down through a skylight and finds himself in this attic. And there's this young girl of 17, almost completely divested of her clothing, being thrashed with a belt by this horrible old crone. And he rescues her. But the whole sort of atmosphere is, is sort of charged with adolescent sex. 
And this is the sort of thing that if, if the Victorian parents actually saw it, they would be horrified that their children were reading it. And Stevenson, it wasn't just Alison Cunningham, his nurse, who didn't like him reading plays or novels even. Uh, it has to be improving works. But if he, if he got his hands on Penny Dreadfuls and, uh, you know, sort of cheap literature like this, he would have to hide it from his parents. And when they stayed at Swanston, their summer cottage just on the edge of, uh, of Edinburgh, uh, he would hide it outside underneath stones or in, you know, little hidey holes on, on the Pentland Hills up back. Later on, the, the, the son of uh, John Todd, the, the shepherd that uh, Stevenson became friendly with, they'd go mm. for big long walks over the Pentland Hills. Todd's son would recall um, how he had found some of this stuff tucked away in odd places because <laughs> he couldn't have it in the house in case his parents found it and he got a row. You know. Anything sort of lurid and in the slightest bit sexual was a no-no in children's literature. But violence, no, killing people off, you know, having black arrows go through people and having them drop dead here, there and everywhere, it mm. was fine. For some reason or other, it, it didn't matter. Stevenson signs off his tongue-in-cheek dedication by correctly predicting the fate of the black arrow. Those who read volumes and those who read story papers belong to different worlds. The verdict on Treasure Island was reversed in the other court. I wonder... Will it be the same with its successor? Although occasionally reappraised by critics like John Goldsworthy, who called the book a lively picture of medieval times, The Black Arrow has in recent years received far less attention than other Stevenson works. In the Edinburgh Companion to Robert Louis Stevenson, it is mentioned only twice in passing. Stevenson himself held much higher hopes for Prince Otto, a novel he was writing around the same time. The Black Arrow was to be what John Sutherland called a left-hand production, a relaxation from the stress of composing something worthy of Stevenson's genius. Prince Otto was like the antithesis. He was convinced that Prince Otto was a literary masterpiece. Yeah. It's incredibly stylish and polished, very sort of erudite. I've read it a couple of times and I can't for the life of you tell, tell you what it's about. <laughs> the, the, the story is that bad. It's sort of stylistically brilliant, story-wise terrible. Mm. And it was written, not quite, but most of it, um, before Fanny, his, his wife, Fanny Stevenson, became, you know, gave her input. And a lot of people hate his wife and think she was this coarse American who, uh, you know, ruined his style and all the rest. But she actually forced him to write commercially. And this is why Stevenson was a bestseller, rather than some obscure literary character who, you know, didn't get any, anywhere very... Far. And uh, before he met her, he was writing essays. Again, beautiful, stylish essays. Dictionaries of quotations have heaps of quotable quotes from Stevenson's essays. He, he had, you know, the, the mot juste, the, the pithy comment, the, you know, the, the clever summing up of some aspect of human nature. You'd get those in his essays, but they were really triumph of style over substance. And it was only after he, after he met Fanny that he wrote commercially, he wrote stories. Sidney Colvin, his first literary mentor, again was keen for him to write essays and literary things and criticism and whatever. But it was only really through uh, young folks and writing for children that he realised that his strength was fiction. Treasure Island kidnapped Black Arrow, got him writing, you know, in full colour, vividly, with the characterization, with great dialogue, with, you know, it was living. It wasn't just, a, you know, a stylish commentary on some trivial aspects of life. 
I think it was largely due to his wife that he realized he could do this. Mm. And, you know, once he started writing fiction, there was no stopping him. That was that was really his metier. And the travel books are pretty damn good as well. But, uh... <laughs> Reflecting on the novel, Stevenson wrote, I had one moment of pride about my poor black arrow. Crookback, I did and I do think is a spirited and possible figure. The future Richard III held a fascination for Stevenson, as he explained to Sidney Colvin. He is a fellow whose hellish energy has always fired my attention. I wish Shakespeare had written the play after he had learned some of the rudiments of literature and art rather than before. Someday I will re-tickle the sable missile and shoot it once more into the air. I can lighten it of much and devote some more attention to Dicker Gloucester. It's great sport to write tushery. Some critics have suggested that Gloucester serves as a doppelganger to our hero. Both are Richards and both are the same age in the novel. One Richard for another, says Gloucester to Dick Shelton. I tell you, if I rise, ye shall rise by the same ladder. John Sutherland calls Gloucester Shelton's murderous alter ego, his Edward Hyde, and the future King of England bears a passing resemblance to the author himself, another deformed and sickly boy, pale as linen, but with eyes shining like a strange jewel. By the end of the novel, having observed Crookback's hunger for fame and vindictive behaviour, Shelton turns his back on action as mere shuttle-wittedness. Edwin M. Eigner explains, What has happened in The Black Arrow is that Richard Shelton, terrified by the evil or wildness which he has observed in his namesake, is shocked into rejecting a part of his own nature. While his source material recalls Shakespeare's histories, the energetic light-heartedness of the novel feels closer to the playwright's early comedies. There are even Shakespearean antics involving cross-dressing love interests roaming the woods. Stevenson may have been dashing it off for a paycheck, but he seems to be enjoying himself. Like the aptly named character Will Lawless, who does naught but for his own pleasure, the novel has a freewheeling breeziness to it, and Stevenson riffs some memorable comic asides. Early on, someone remarks the Black Arrow's letter will hit the parson hard. He will turn paper colour. He will pray like a windmill. Later, an agent's skills are complimented. He was keen as a beagle and secret as a mole. Italo Calvino once said, I love Stevenson because he gives the impression he is flying. He was hilarious. He, uh, he, he loved being silly. The silly side of Stevenson doesn't always come out in his, um, you know, in his books or whatever. Mm. Apart from um, the wrong box that he wrote with his stepson Lloyd, which is a very silly book. And that was certainly inspired by Lewis and he rewrote bits of it and whatever. But also his short story collection, New Arabian Nights, which is gets quite daft in places. And this was, you know, his sense of humour. But no, in the letters, it has full reign. It's hilarious. It's why he loves, I love his letters. Years and years ago when I was a student, and I'd write letters to my friends because in those days we didn't have emails and whatever. And you'd write all sorts of crap and you'd, pre- you'd pretend to be literary and you'd, you know, you, you, you'd put in all sorts of silly visual jokes and all the rest. And I thought, you know, it was just me and my pals that did stupid things like this. And to actually discover somebody who's sort of a, an A-list literary giant who also wrote bloody silly stuff like this in his letters, I thought, this is marvellous. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of today's episode on The Black Arrow. To hear more from Jeremy, tune in next time when we'll be talking more about Stevenson, and in particular, Jeremy's book, Mrs Jekyll and Cousin Hyde. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, happy reading. (laughs) 